This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. That's where we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit. It covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. We've got live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Guys come from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. And I want to encourage you to join our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This challenge will make you a better networker and a better connector. Oh, and if you want to have accountability or want to invite a friend or two, go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge or have them text charmed to 33444 and they can join the challenge too. Today we're talking with my friend John Acuff. He wrote a book called Do Over. It is a great book. We're going to talk a few topics from that book. We're going to bring out our bingeification, why it's ruining your hustle, why hustle is an overused buzzword, and why you should focus and not frenzy when you do hustle, why most people shouldn't be entrepreneurs, and some practical exercises to find out not only who's in your network, but what skills you already know to help narrow down your career path and help you find meaningful work. So enjoy this one with John Acuff. So your book came out a while ago, huh? Yeah, it came out in uh, April. How did it do, or how is it doing, or how's it, it going? Did, it did great. I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated about the publishing industry and in that I think it's five years behind the recording industry. Oh, I'm sure. And so in Nashville, I've had to watch every musician friend of mine completely reinvent themselves like four or five times, and I think authors are headed that way too. It sold you know, more last week than it did in the fourth week, and so we've seen consistent sales. So I'm, I'm excited about that, but I'm, I'm continually learning how hard it is to sell books and, and how you have to actually do that. Oh, did they not tell you that writing and publishing a book was not a great way to make money? Was that not, did you not get that memo? Well, the, this is number five. So I've, I've known that, but you're a slow learner, John. That's yeah, the problem. I'm a slow learner. Well, this is the first I've done as a pure entrepreneur where it's just me out of my own. And I worked with Penguin. So I had a huge publisher but it's just you learn all these lessons about just how to sell things and the expectations of an online consumer. It's been a crash course in that. I've loved it, but it's it's definitely been a cold water of like, oh boy, I have to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, no kidding. I was talking to a friend of mine who's got a handful of bestsellers under his belt, which is great. I mean, not many people can really say that, actually. And I, I said, what's your advice? You know, if I Because he was trying to encourage me to write a book, which may or may not ever happen. And he goes, but here's the thing, just write one. Don't write five, you just need one. And then you're the bestseller and then you can do the speaking and you got this and you got that. You don't need to write five different books. He's like, I kind of regret doing it, which I thought was surprising. That is that is surprising. What I what I regret is, and I'm, I'm getting smarter about how long it takes me to write a good book. It's easy to write a bad book and have it be 80 pages and say what authors do that where they go, you're too busy to read a long book, so I made it short for you, which is code for I'm lazy. 
Um, and I have an idea that was really a magazine article that I tried to turn into a book. And so I'm learning that I don't, you know, I can't do an amazing book every year. Like I just haven't lived enough life for that. It's not, you know, we talked about that in our pre kind of phone call about the idea of instant experts and actually creating value. And, and that's what I really like about your show. Like I really like even the first three or four sentences you say at the beginning of the show reflects such hard work and such brevity and on purpose words. Like I just, I absolutely love that. Like you can see the craft you put into the show. And I, I think that's a great example of how to do a podcast. Well, thank you very much. You know what you're good at? Giving compliments. And I like that about you. <laughs> well, I was just listening to the Hugh episode the other day. Antarctica, you know. Oh, yeah. Guy. Hugh Culver. Yeah. And it was just fascinating to hear the way you ask questions and the way you're thinking about stuff. And I don't know, you won't let guests say things that are just make them up stuff where like they act like it's normal. It's not like when he said, yeah, I was sleeping at my office every night. And then their employees would come in and I'd be jealous. And you're like, well, so like, did you not have access to a bed? Like you kind of <laughs> said you pulled that the thread a little bit, which got more information. I, I really appreciate podcasts that do stuff like that because I don't think everyone does. Oh, yeah. One of the things that you talk about a lot online from the research that I've done and that I gleaned from our pre-interview call as well is that not only are you kind of anti-make stuff up, if you will, but you put a lot of work, surprise, surprise, into the craft that you create as well. And you've, you've put a lot of work into figuring out what it is that you're good at, which most people never actually do. Yeah. And I was even thinking about that. I went back through our pre notes and, you know, in the form I filled out and you said, I want you to describe yourself in one sentence. And I read the sentence and I was like, that's gross. That's not what I do. I wrote, I share intuitive ideas and counterintuitive ways to help generate life change. Blech. Like anyone could say that. And that's the sentence. Like when you do a podcast interview, you have to get behind the sentence because they're going to give you that. Like, here's a sentence I say and it comes out naturally. Yeah. The sound bite. PR people, they get so lathered up. I'll, that's my PC version of what you know what I mean. Yeah. They get so lathered up when people have sound bites. But then if you think about it for like five seconds, which is the whole point is you're not supposed to, you go, wait, that doesn't mean anything at all. And 80% of motivational stuff, if you pull the thread, you go, wait a second. Like I saw somebody selling an online copywriting course the other day. They have a million Instagram followers. They probably bought a lot of them, but there were typos in the first sentence. And it was, I'll teach you how to get into your copywriter. And I was like, that makes no sense. <laughs> Here's the way I look at it. Because uh, my background's in advertising. Like my favorite thing was the thumb test. And the whole idea is if somebody put their thumb over your logo, would every other part of the ad shout out who you were? So like when I put my thumb over a Nike swoosh, the rest of the ad goes, this is Nike. The photography, the intensity of the headline, whatever. So I'd say the same thing about your podcast. If I put my thumb over your face or the name Art of Charm, would the topics, would the type of questions, would the type of interviews, would they shout out, this is something Jordan's created? They would. And so when I gave you that sentence, I share intuitive ways and counterintuitive ways, whatever, anyone could have said that. Like you could put the thumb over John Acuff and that could be anybody where I think what I really do is I, I use humor to put handles on ideas so that people can use them to change their lives. Like that's what I like to do. That's cool. I like that because it provides a, a cool visual putting a handle on an idea because man, I might have to, I might have to uh, steal some part of that because I really do dig that. Most people who provide ideas one of the chief issues that I have with it, and you can hear this in the shows if you've been listening for a while, is that they don't put 
the proverbial handle on it. So it's like, you know what? You just need to find your passion and then just focus and just hustle. And you're like, cool. That's a bunch of really vague stuff. There's no handle. I can't grip on it and can't grab it, hold of it, and do anything with it because it's platitude or because the idea it might be really good and it might be really specific, but there's no action step. Yeah, it's the, you know, when you dream, the universe will open up its arms and embrace your dream. And you go, oh, that sounds like a great ad for a candle, but that doesn't do anything for me on a Tuesday. How do I actually use that to get a job promotion? Like, and so that's what I like to do. So like when somebody, you know, I would never say, hey, if you watch a lot of TV, you won't be able to progress because people would tune that out. Like the way the brain's wired, there's this part of it called Broca. And Broca's whole job is to filter out ideas it's already heard and bucket them. So like when you go to a, a, a New Mexican restaurant, you immediately go, this reminds me of Tito's back home and you bucket it and your brain can stop thinking about it. So there's this concept called surprising Broca that this guy Roy H. Williams has where you've got to present stuff in fresh ways or people won't engage with it. So instead, I'd do an idea about binge watching TV. I'd point out, you know, 20 years ago, the word binge was an insult. It was a bad word with a negative connotation. Now you go to Best Buy and the aisles say binge worthy TV. And like, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you went to Blockbuster and rented nine movies, even the guy on the ca- at the counter would go, is everything all right at home, dude? Like, <laughs> yeah, dude. Are you okay? But now exactly. when you binge watch House of Cards all Saturday and come in on Monday at work and go, hey, I binge watch House of Cards, people recommend other shows. Like, so I, you know, I'll back into the idea of, hey, part of the reason you're not getting where you want to go is because you're giving Netflix all your time. Or I'll say, you know, I'm not against fantasy football, but don't tell me you can't hustle on your business and then show me your intense research you did on a third string backup punter and the wind coming out of Chicago this weekend. Like you have time and you have hustle. You're just not applying it to things that matter. That's interesting. Have you actually found people like that? Because I get that they're passionate about the the football thing, but it's almost kind of sad if they don't also have a really awesome job that uses those same skills. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people like that. Gallup's latest poll is 90% of Americans are disengaged from work. You meet the same people I do where you go, what do you want to do? And they tell you, and then you go, well, what actions are you currently doing about that? And they go, oh, man, someday I'm really going to, you know, like, oh, I'm just too busy. Yeah, so I, I meet people that have ideas about what they do but aren't doing any actions around them. If I said, how much TV do you watch in a week? Because the average American watches 35, according to Nielsen they won't have a number for me. So we love to not know the numbers so that we can live in denial and then go, oh, if I wasn't so busy, where if we actually did kind of a calendar diet, we would go, oh, no. I guess I use humor to say hard things in easy ways. So like when I go talk at a college, I'll tell them, hey, you're not going to get your dream job when you graduate. You know what? As a matter of fact, I hope you don't because you won't even know how to understand it or appreciate it. Like I don't want you to peak at 23. Your first job's job is to teach you how to have a job. You know, because you're going to trade three months of vacation for eight days a year. That's a sharp curve. Let's talk about how you do that. Yeah, no kidding. In retrospect, I should have had many more first jobs than I had because I deserve to get fired a lot. Oh, yeah. It took me 15 years to understand I'm unemployable. Like I was meant to, you know, help other people be career focused. I needed to be an entrepreneur and I needed to be, you know, growing something. And, and I love big companies. Like we tend to glorify the entrepreneur in our culture right now where people are like, if you're not a full-time entrepreneur, you're not chasing a dream, but I love big companies. You know, I don't have a problem with that at all. But yeah, I, 
now that I'm my own boss and learn, like know how to work a little bit more, and I just want to write them apology notes and be like, hey, remember that time in the meeting where I ignored everybody and was super aloof and acted like I was doing you a favor by showing up for the job you were paying me money for? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't even know who to apologize to. I don't have enough cards to reach everybody I failed. Oh, just like a bullhorn. Just like one episode, it could be like Jordan apologizes. Yeah, It could just be like you going through a list. Yeah, yeah. Be the most boring show ever and be really long as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
I like what you said about disagreeing with the whole entrepreneur, everybody's chasing a dream thing. I have mentioned this, and me and Jason have mentioned this before on the show, we really disagree with that because I, I think most people should not be entrepreneurs. It's tougher than getting a regular job. It's not as stable. There's a lot more stress involved. And you've got to do this weird thing where you actually build value in yourself. I think uh, Cal Newport calls it uh, career capital, where you bring something that's unique, you put it with something else that's kind of unique or at least developed, and you create some value in yourself that people are willing to pay for. And that's a very deliberate, very difficult process that most people shouldn't really have to do in order to create their own business. Most people are really good enough working really hard and developing one or two skills that make them valuable to a bigger company. They don't need to start their own thing or they're wasting their life's potential. I, I really disagree with the trendiness of entrepreneurship. I think it's kind of just a rejection of like having a boss or working for someone else. I feel almost like it's been made famous by people who are doing really amazing stuff, the Elon Musks of the world, which is great, but I think it's been hijacked by internet marketers to sell people crap. Yeah, and I think we share the same belief about the idea that if you've only done it once and it was for your life, you shouldn't sell a course indicating it'll happen for everyone. Oh, yeah. like That's part of the ego to me of like, if your test case is one person and it was you, and then you go, and we often go back and create these steps we didn't actually take because we go, Hey, we're going to sell a course and I made X amount of dollars or I did this thing. And if you'll follow these steps, you'll do it too. And that misses so much of the uniqueness of your story. So much of it that was outside of your control, the things that happened. Yeah. That's where I kind of get stuck on that. And I get stuck on the idea that anyone can do anything. Like I'll never be in the NFL, Jordan. That wasn't a lack of, you know, skill on my part. I saw a picture of The Rock the other day. Um, it was when he was eight and it was he and his dad. And his dad was like 6'4", like 280 and was a gigantic wrestler. Like it's crazy to think, you know what? If I had just read enough positive affirmations, <laughs> if I had done enough push-ups and wanted it enough, I'd probably be just like The Rock. No, like he had opportunities that were different than the ones I had. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. You and I, I think we could talk forever about the dangers and what happens when people buy into something that promises something that can't deliver. And they feel like I've got to be an entrepreneur or I've got to write a book. Some people ask me, should I write a book or should everyone write a book? And I always say no. And I think they're insulted by that. But what I mean is I shouldn't record an album. You know, I shouldn't sculpt like, but with books, it's this weird thing where everybody feels like I should have a book. Like I saw this entrepreneur that has a book. And so I should, and you go, do you like writing? No. Have you ever wanted to write? No. Like, do you think you'll write something good? Mm. You know, then don't write a book. Right. But I really want that blue check mark on Facebook. Right. No, it's not. Yeah. No, that's that's a terrible reason to write a book. Whenever somebody <laughs> says a book is a great way to build authority, I think it's also a great way to write a terrible book. Like if that's your motivation, I do agree that a book is a business card in some ways, like having a book open some doors. But I don't know if it's the best start to a book to approach it from that way. I think you create really thin books that ultimately don't do a lot of good. Yeah, there's a lot of that out here now. It's kind of the internet marketer plan. One, start email list, put out content, video, written, whatever. Two, publish book, uh, ebook, do webinars. Then three, create bestseller using list to prop yourself up in the list for speaking career. No, and, and five is teach people how to do what you just did. Right, yes, yeah, rinse and repeat. So like, and then like, 
six is teach people how to teach people to do what you just did. And then seven, you know, and it just kind of, it onions on itself. I think for me, like I'm trying my first like foray into kind of a 30 day like challenge. And I did it first with 10,000 people for free because I wanted to see if it was worth anything. I've spent 18 months on figuring out, okay, what really works? How do people really change their lives? And then I'll do it. So I think there's ways. I don't think either one of us is saying throw out the baby with the bathwater, but I think there's ways to do it right. And there's ways to do it quick and easy. And I always tell people if there's no shortcut. And if someone tells you there's a shortcut, they're usually trying to sell you that shortcut. Of course, that's always how it goes. And again, I, w- I want to be super clear. We're not saying that everybody out there teaching stuff on the web is full of crap. It's just that usually people that come on this show talk about how much work goes into everything. And the reason we do the long format show like this is because people can't just get three quick tips from somebody who's been through a lot of stuff without getting the full backstory. Otherwise, we're doing the whole story in injustice. I mean, you you spent 17 years in the regular workforce, working for regular companies, building career capital, learning valuable lessons, making a lot of mistakes. Now your goal is to digest some of that and bring it back to us in a way where we don't have to maybe spend 17 years doing it, but it doesn't mean you don't have to spend zero years. It means we might need a half a decade or just a decade. Yeah. And you're, you're always going to keep learning. Like that's, what's interesting about life. I'll, I'll turn 40, um, this year. And I know when I turn 50, I'll look back on some of these ideas I thought I knew and say, wow, the things I thought I knew at 40. Um, and that's how you want it to go. Like if you're going to grow, you want to constantly be able to look back and go, okay, these three things are right, but I had no idea about these other five because I hadn't experienced them or I had a really small sample. Like I, I wrote a book called quitter that talked about, the side hustle and how you should always do something on the side until it becomes large enough to become your full-time thing. If that's the path you're going to take. And then I started to meet people that would say, Hey, you know what? I want to be a cattle rancher and I can't get one head of cattle in my apartment complex and grow it slowly on the side. Like that's an all or nothing where I have to go work at a cattle ranch during the summers. And here's that process. And it changed my opinion of going, Oh, you know what? I can see some gray in this black and white thing I presented. That's a really good pushback. And so if I ever did an update on that, I'd, I'd incorporate that. And so, yeah, my, my hope is you keep learning. But yeah, neither one of us is saying that classes are bad. I think they can be awesome. I just think like anything that's going to be great is going to take great time. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking about that. I just did a book tour. I did 15 cities. And we had like 4,000 people sign up for it. And I have this photo of the first time I did an event. The first time I did my own event, it was a meetup. And it was the cockiest thing to think I needed a meetup. All I had was a blog. I didn't even have a book. I don't know why I thought people were going to come be in a room to see me. And I thought there would be a ton of people. Again, super cocky, naive, whatever word. And I convinced my in-laws that it'd be huge. They printed a thousand stickers. Like I brought all these Skittles. And then I got there and two people came. And one person was my friend who came to encourage me. And the other guy who came was just this father who walked in and said, my daughter reads your blog I don't call her. And he put me on the phone with her and we had like an awkward 30 second conversation and he left. And I had a friend take a photo of the event of me and all these chairs. And I posted it because it was this huge failure and it became this huge post for me about being honest. But then I was thinking about doing a post comparing it to what happened with the 4,000. But I want to be honest about it because what you usually do if you're a motivational guy is you go, look how far I've come and you can too if you do these exact steps. But the truth of it is, Jordan, I worked with this guy, Dave Ramsey, for three years, who has a huge platform, gigantic platform. And a big part of why I get to do what I do now, and I haven't worked there for two years, is that he exposed me to millions of people. 
And so it would be really unfair for me in that story to leave that out and go, hey, and the second step is work for a guy who has a radio station with 7 million listeners. Right, because you can't sell that. Yeah, you can't sell that. But that's the honest truth. So I think life is curvier than we want to admit sometimes. And I love when people will say, hey, this is how it worked for me. And here's how it's worked for some other people. And I think you should look at it through the filter of you. That's what I always tell people. Like when you listen to a podcast, when you read one of my books, read it through the filter of you. That's what I don't like about productivity books. A lot of times they're written by people who are naturally good at that. And they go, I get up at 3 a.m. and I have a kale smoothie that's 4.7 ounces and I don't eat anything but fruit until 2 in the afternoon. And then I run for a triathlon. Just do that. Duh. And you go, well, okay, that's not exactly how I'm naturally wired. And I have five kids. And, you know, so I I try to be kind of open about that. I I think that's you have to be open about that. Otherwise, you become so unrelatable. Nobody can learn anything from you. I want to also back up and highlight the Dave Ramsey experience that you had because I think what it could accidentally teach us is that, oh, well, you need a big break. Everybody needs a big break. And I think a lot of times big breaks can be overrated, but I think other times, like the building a platform, it was a very necessary part of development. A lot of people will write in and say, well, you know, your show is huge. It makes sense. You were on Sirius XM Satellite Radio for three and a half years in New York City. That went all over the U.S. and Canada. We didn't get that many fans from that. So I'm very open about that because I don't want people who are also starting their own thing to go, well, you know, then I have to get on this radio show and I got to do this and this has to be big. There's nothing wrong with incremental growth if it's actually possible. That's where it's the mix. Like it's the mix of moments like that, but then really hard work for incremental growth. Um, You know, just like I do, if you had after that show ended, not done anything for six months, maybe even three months, it's gone. Like the vapor of that fades really quickly. I heard uh, Louis C.K. said that. Louis C.K. said fame resets every year. And I love that. I think momentum does too, maybe even shorter than that. And so, yeah, you don't need a break. And the things I thought were breaks didn't end up being breaks. Like hitting the New York Times list was amazing. And I've done it twice and I loved it. But it's not like after that, like just money shows up in your driveway. And opportunities are just like, hey, now there's a secret coat you get to wear and (laughs) you smoke pipes because it did some things, but it didn't make it easy. Yeah, I'm with you. Like I try to balance that where you don't need this break. And if you wait for this break, it never ends up coming. The things that have changed my life the most, I didn't know in the moment. What Like like what? Okay. So a friend of mine um, that I worked with at Auto Trader, I was a senior content designer. This is back in the day where everybody had the word designer in their title. I was a copywriter, essentially. And a friend of mine said, hey, I think you should blog. I think you should write a blog. And his name was Ryan Sweet. And I was like, ah, you think? And so I started this blog and that launched this whole experience. But again, it was one conversation with him in a cubicle one day as we were reviewing work. And and it was a conversation and it, it pushed me down this path. At the moment, I didn't go back and call my wife and say, Ryan just said something that's going to launch me down the craziest 10 year path of my life. But it's little things like that, that kind of pushed me in the direction. The reason I got to go work with Dave Ramsey is one of his employees read my blog and they always have speakers come every Wednesday. And he said, we should have this guy come speak here. It was the second time I've ever spoken professionally and they just took a shot on me. And that's what started that. So it was little things that at the moment I didn't predict, but now I can look back on and go, Oh, Here's a great example. So with Penguin, we went through like 40 iterations with the book cover when we were trying to design it. And there was this really talented designer named Zoe who designed it. 
And when I went up to New York to meet with them, I said, Hey, can I tour the design department? I'd love to meet Zoe. Like she did such a great job. And I genuinely was interested, you know, and I took photos of the design she had done and I posted online. And after the book came out, she ended up leaving the company and said, Hey, I'm having my own do over. And I posted about her on Instagram and said, Hey, if you ever want to hire a great designer, here's Zoe. And I had a senior editor at Penguin later tell me, Hey, the reason I kind of looked at you differently, the reason I thought about you differently, the moment it changed for me was when I saw you celebrate Zoe. And she said, authors that come in don't go tour the design department. They don't see the Zoe's. And that meant a lot to me. And I didn't do it as a play. I wasn't like, okay, if I do this thing, somebody I don't know who's important will see it. I did it because it was fun. And I've been Zoe where somebody else supported me in a, you know, on a bigger platform than I had. And again, that was a little thing that changed my relationship with a big publisher. And so that's what I mean by the little things you don't see coming. Yeah, I think that's important to note. It goes in line a lot with what we teach at AOC about creating relationships and for the sake of creating relationships and not looking at what you can get out of things. Yeah, and people know that they feel the difference immediately. If they feel like you're creating a transaction versus a relationship, they can tell. And you know, you've had to deal with this too. It's interesting when you get a platform, the stuff you get asked to do. It's, you know, I always tell people friends help friends, you know, friends do favors for friends, not strangers. And so, you know, never start a friendship asking for a favor, start with friendship. And it's little things like that, especially on the internet that makes such a big difference. I know a lot of people write in and, and tweet and Facebook and just complain because they don't know what to do in their career or even what they want to do with their career. They don't really know what the relationships are that they have, speaking of creating friendships versus transactions. And you've got a pretty good exercise that we can use to figure out who we really know and how those people might come into play in our career path. Yeah, the you're dead right. Like the reality is most people don't know who they know. So if I sat down with one of your listeners at coffee and said, Hey, who do you know that could help you with your career? They can maybe rattle off four or five people, but most of us, we just haven't thought about it much. So I, I have some really simple questions I like to ask people. And I always encourage them to do a note card exercise. There's tons of research about why writing something down physically is better than typing it into a computer or a device. But I always say, grab a stack of note cards and put one person's name per card. And the questions I tell people to ask are, number one, who do I know that is wise about career issues? And I'm talking about in your circle of friends. I mean, the people you know, it can be somebody at work, somebody that you play basketball with in the morning, um, somebody you're actually connected to. Who's wise when it comes to career? Number two, who have I worked with? I think it's important to say, okay, here's 10 people I've worked with. And you can go to LinkedIn and say, okay, I actually have some relationships with these people. And I'm not saying everyone who's been employed by that company. I mean that if I said, okay, who did I work with that I had a great relationship with um, at AutoTrader? Okay, Mark Sutton. He was one of the designers. Ryan Sweet, I just mentioned him. Justine, she was somebody in my department. I could probably come up with 10 people from that one job that I've worked with. Number three, um, I'd say, who do I know that is influential? Who in my life actually has some influence? Um, and it doesn't have to be who's famous. I don't mean that. I mean, okay, if I was going to try to become a plumber, maybe I had been a plumber in another town. I just moved to Nashville where I live. It wouldn't be bad to ask at Home Depot and say, hey, I just moved here. You run the plumbing department. Who are the big, you know, 
plumbing firms in town that you do the most business with? Or, you know, who's coming in constantly that it'd be great for me to be connected to? It's just getting, you know, exploring who you know it's influential. Number four, who do I know that owns a business? I love this one because business owners know other business owners. My favorite example of that is we've got a guy in town that owns a, a smoothie shop named Nine Fruits. His name is Dan Banks. And he knows everyone in this town. It's this waterhole where people come together. And I know that I might not be in the smoothie business, but if I had a business need, I could talk to Dan Banks and say, hey, I'm really thinking about trying this. Who do you know? The fifth question is, who do I follow online that is in my desired career space? We have access to people like no other generation. I don't know how people wrote motivational books in the 40s where they'd say, you can be connected to anyone. How? If you wanted to meet other nurses, would you put like an ad in the newspaper and say, hey, I'll be down here on 5th and Main. Please don't stab me when you show up. But you have access to other people that are in your space. And the, the thing I always say is ask them one question. You get the same email as I do where somebody sends you a 10,000 word email and they go, I know you're busy, but... And then they ask you this question, like, yeah. will you be my mentor forever? Like, I want to have coffee every day until we both die. We'll be buried in the cemetery together and I'll give you presents that I hand make. And you go, whoa, I don't, I can't, <laughs> like, no. The hand make thing is, uh, that's the clincher on that, on that, on that joke. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so what I say is, ask that person one question. What's one book you'd recommend I read? And then when they recommend it, read it. And a week later, send them the two things or three things you learned from that book. Actually do the work. Like, it's a great way to get connected to somebody. And the last question is, what casual relationships am I forgetting that might have a career impact? I try to get the net really wide because sometimes when we think about our relationships, we think about the two or three people we know the best, but so many opportunities come from casual relationships. So what happens every time I've done this exercise with people and I've had thousands of people do it is they always get this big pile of note cards, this huge pile of note cards and it immediately says to them, oh, wait a second. I have some options I didn't know I have. Look, look at all the people I know. And so I, I love to do stuff like that with people. That's actually really good. So the cards are to illustrate visually because the way that I'd, I've done this exercise in the past, and I, I probably will take a, a page from your book here, forgive the pun, is uh, I have people make a list of everybody that they know from starting in chronological order. And the idea is it's impossible and you make it and you get exhausted doing it. And you're like, oh my God, I know so many people. But I think this is cool because it's more focused. And then when you're done, you've run out of index cards and you've got this huge stack and you go, wow, I know a crap load of people that have impact or potential impact in my career path, not just my mom's hairdresser. Yeah, I, I did this exercise with somebody just the other day. He's 48 years old. And sometimes fear tells you like at 42, you're past new opportunities. But you and I both know that there's not an expiration date on trying something new. So he's 48, took this really intense aptitude test that said, you look like you're really skilled at computer science. That's an industry you should explore. He hasn't done it for his, his entire life, but he said, okay, what do I know about life? I know right now I have two kids. I have a mortgage. I can't just go back to school full time. That's not the path. But then he realized, you know, I know five people in my neighborhood that are in the computer science, computer industry. Maybe I could just go to coffee with them and ask them some questions. And I guarantee I'd get a next step out of that conversation. So he texted me today, like an hour before I got on this call, he texted me and said, hey, quick update. Here's the four meetings I've set up. You know, I'm working on that hustle. And so I love the note cards because it gives you the visual. And then if you want to, you can put them up on a board, put them up on a whiteboard, put them up on a corkboard, and you'll start to see patterns. You'll start to see, wow, 
these four people are all in this one space. I wonder if I should explore that space or I haven't touched base with this person in a while. Maybe I should figure out a way to touch base with them. And I think it just gives you a lot of encouragement and a lot of momentum. You know, that's interesting. The arranging it on a pin board idea is really good because if you're going to reach out to each of these people, one side of the pin board is for people you reached out to. You know, one section is for people who replied. One section is for people who haven't replied yet that you haven't reached out to yet or whatever. And you can sort of workflow it. Yeah, it takes a lot of the fear out of it. You know, whenever we don't want to do something, we try to pretend it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Go, it's too complicated and we overcomplicate things. And so I'm all about how do we simplify it and actually do it? So I wouldn't say, hey, you got to contact 100 people because instantly people get paralyzed by that. I'd say, okay, look at your whiteboard, go to coffee with one person if you like coffee or like go, go on a walk with somebody if you like to walk. Here's how to do that. And then you start to build it slowly. One of the things I love to do with people is I'll, I'll ask them to cut their goal in half because so many people I work with do too big of a goal. They haven't written in 10 years and then they go, I got excited. I read a motivational book going to write a book this weekend. Oh my gosh. And I'll go, oh, so zero pages previously, whole book by the end of this three day, like Martin Luther King weekend. Okay. And they get discouraged. So what I'll tell people, and I, I did this when I took those 10,000 people through this challenge was I said, Hey, cut the goal in half. And I did it like day 12. And what happens is if you want to lose 10 pounds in a month and you cut it down to five, when you end up losing seven, you're encouraged and you try it another month. That's my goal is for you to try it another month. What happens if you set out for 10 and you do seven, you missed your goal by three and you feel like a failure and your odds of not doing it again go down dramatically. Right. Yeah, of course. So set yourself up for the wins, even if the wins are smaller than you might like. Yeah. And build on them because I think part of the internet contributes to that where people are kind of like showcasing all the things they've won on. And then you feel like go big or go home, like for long-term sustained growth, sustained change. If you'll put your ego aside and your pride aside and actually build it in a slow way, it matters so much more. That The challenge is we've always had the idea of comparing ourselves or the idea of like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It's just now we have access to a million backyards and that, that makes it hard for people. Now, this obviously requires a lot of effort regardless, but the way that we've done it with the cards, for example, is an act of focus. And I'd like especially somebody in your position who's obviously accomplished and done a whole lot, set a lot of goals and accomplished a lot of goals. Can we talk about yet another buzzword now that we're on that train? Hustle. People are all about the hustle and it seems like they're doing it in this weird sort of frenzied way. Like, I'm going to write a book this weekend. Oh, my God. Get a pot of coffee going and keep it coming. Right. As opposed to figuring out a plan to create a focused hustle and put their energy into that pipeline. They're kind of like shotgun blasting it all over the place and it fizzles out. Yeah, I, I always tell people hustle is an act of focus, not frenzy. We often think it's about addition, like getting a new to-do list of additional things to do. But it's equally about subtraction, about going, okay, I'm not going to do these five things. Um, I'm not going to do these three things. And hustle has a terrible reputation on the internet right now because like the most over-promotional people that are showing like photos of their watches and their rented Ferraris um, on Instagram are saying like, every day I'm hustling, you know, Abraham right. Lincoln. And you're like, pretty sure that was Rick Ross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it does have a bad reputation, but for me, it's just a fuel. It's just hard work. And so I always talk to people about the tension of yes and no when it comes to hustle. 
in that you have to say yes to some opportunities and you have to say no to some opportunities. And, and I'm honestly not very good at that. I have to be really deliberate in order to work hard. My wife calls me the laziest, hardworking person she knows. So it's a work in progress for me. Like I'd rather binge watch Netflix. It's a lot easier than doing hard work. I, I found it to be a lot easier than doing hard work. So when I like when I do the note card exercise or when I when I have something I have to focus on, I have to turn everything else off. Like I have to turn off Wi-Fi. Like if Wi-Fi is on, I'll get lost in Twitter. I'll go somewhere. Like a lot of times my ability to hustle is that I brought the three things I needed to work on and I went to the library where there was no other distractions and I only had three things with me and I did those three things. I really have to set up kind of like gamify my situation to actually hustle. So I do some specific things about that. Basically, you've figured out your own psychological weaknesses and you use psychology to beat that, to beat yourself. You know you're gonna get distracted so you turn off Wi-Fi. For me, I can't have things in my visual sphere because, for example, going out to eat, if there's a TV behind the person that's across from me, I have to switch seats with them because otherwise I'm watching friggin' Fox News over their shoulder with no audio. It won't matter too what's on. For no. me, it could be like the German World Cup of dog grooming. And I'm like, oh, what are they going to do with that poodle? Where are yeah. they going? And, and yeah, it doesn't matter. As long as it's shiny and in motion, I'm out. No, I, I think it's, I don't love hack. That's such an overused term. But for me, simple things like I can't write to music that has words. I can't, I can't even like do most things to music that has words because I get focused on the words. So I have to write to like Seager Ross. But when it comes to editing and I have to edit angry because writing, you have to love it enough to create it but then hate it enough to edit it. Uh, like yeah. That's the tension. And so I'll edit to like hardcore rap, like, or old school rap. Like I'll put on run DMC. I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we, like, I have to amp myself up, but that's one of those little, okay. I know my psychology. I just think that so often we move so quickly. We don't learn the lessons that our lives are trying to teach us. And we act like it's a surprise and we go, I had no idea. That's how I did things really. Cause you have 10 years of proof. That's how you do things. Every time you've done that, this has been the result. And that's why, again, like we talked about relationships, that's part of why you need relationships. When somebody, you know, says to me, I want to change my job or I want to grow my business, I want to do this decision, I'll always say this question. I'll always say, what's your team telling you right now? And 99 times out of 100, they don't have a team. And by team, I mean two or three people that can ask you honest questions and can say like, hey, this thing you're doing think it's ego driven. Like, I think you need to be really careful about that. Um, like for me, having somebody, you know, it can be my wife, it can be somebody else that'll go, Hey, I know it was really fun to go to that city and do that book signing. Cause you got to Instagram that you're important and look at me, I'm on the road, I'm hustling. But if it only sold X amount of books and it took you 32 hours, then you have to admit it's not a great way to sell a book. You have to do something else, you know? And so yeah. I think that's what we need. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. 
That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year. And I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm. And use code charm at checkout. It's great to have those people around you, and it is very hard. I mean, I've got Jenny, who helps with a lot of this stuff. She lives with me and is my assistant and is, you know, my significant other. It's, it's kind of a tough relationship. And I got producer Jason, who's sitting over there quietly right now, and he's the guy who's like, you just made that up. That joke sucked. It, it's not all negative. A lot of it's great, but it can be hard to hear, you know? You're just like, oh, this is so great. And he's like, no, this was a terrible show. You, we can't even do anything with this. You're just happy you got so-and-so on the podcast and I'm like damn it you're right you know no let's be honest it's not like it's not easy like that's a great point I whenever I say that I want to make sure that people don't think that like I have a friend who calls me up and says hey this thing you did wasn't good or is ego driven and I immediately go hey man thanks for those word vitamins those were like (laughs) that was so good for my heart no yeah yeah, truth bomb (laughs) that I've received hashtag blessed like no usually what I say in that moment is some form of screw you. Yeah. And I don't say it that boldly, right. but it takes me like three grumpy hours to come back and admit they were right. Oh yeah. So don't hear like this deep maturity where I'm sitting in a rocking chair going, no, no, tell me some other things I suck at. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is refreshing. Please. I want to grow. Like it's taken time. My wife and I, we've been married for 14 years. First couple years of marriage. Like if she would criticize something I wrote, I was just like blown away. I was, I thought marriage was like, you say rah, rah. And I really had an understanding of marriage that was broken. Now, when she goes, Hey, this thing you said in do over isn't true. You need to take it out. Like she read do over nine times cover to cover. She now hates it. <laughs> oh, she, now, she hasn't it. read it since. No, like she sees bright yellow. She's like, I don't want to see that book again. Right. But she would tell me things that I needed to take out. And then I would leave for like three or four grumpy hours and be like, you're wrong. You don't know books. 
And then I'd come back and be like, it's a pretty good idea. Thank yeah, you, thanks for that. Thanks for that fresh eyes from a caring perspective. Sorry I made the rest of your afternoon yeah. a living Sorry, hell. I told you you were a horrible person. That's <laughs> yeah. not, that was not my intention. Exactly. It, it's kind of funny because you're editing your own writing. And by the way, I'm I'm imagining you sitting there blasting straight out of Compton being like, get the semicolon out of here. Exactly. That's what I do. I'm like, it's not an in-dash. Easy E hates in-dashes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you need your team to edit your stuff your thoughts in your life or whatever you're doing, your, your work, but you can only edit the finer details because you're not attached to it. But the greater project, you're too attached to it. Somebody else has to help you edit that. Oh, you're in love with it. And you can't, you know, everybody thinks their baby's cute. And a lot of times it's kind of like you're so close to the painting, you can't really see what it is. And so it's like being in a bad dating relationship where you break up and you tell your friends like, wow, she was a monster. And they go, yeah, we all knew. We were all very aware of that. We tried to tell you that, but you were so close into it, you couldn't see the truth of it. You, you just threw three metaphors in rapid fire. You can tell I you're a writer. I have so many. I have, just, <laughs> I have a big bucket I pull out of. Um, it's next to my analogy bucket. Yeah, put the, put, yeah th- there was another one right there, by the way, for those of you who want to get really meta. I created a metaphor talking about metaphors. Oh, my that was That was Ninja, Metaphor yeah, Inception. Yeah, about that. Speaking of having a team, you said you got a simple idea from an NFL player that changed not only the way you packed for trips, but how you approach learning new skills. I have to know what that could possibly be. Yeah, so I did a speaking event, and it was me, two NFL players, and a professional wrestler, Jerry the King Lawler, and then me. So like the poster was like three real men with muscles and then a skinny writer. Kind of like that picture you referenced with the rock standing next to his dad. Exactly. And I even did the thing where guys put their hands behind their biceps to try to look a little bigger. Right. Oh, Um, yeah. It didn't work. Welcome to every photograph of me on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's what's on my book cover. If you look at the back of do-over, that's the photo I'm describing. And so I was talking to him about, you know, how he'd been in the NFL. His name was Bernard Pollard. He'd been in the NFL for eight years at that point. Won a Super Bowl. And I said, you know, the average NFL span is or career is 3.2 years. How have you lasted? Like, what's the secret? What's the thought behind that? And he said, most of the guys have the hardest time with the discipline. He said, it's the repetition. It's the mental stuff you have to repeatedly do. And he said, especially when you add money to it. Like if you add a bunch of money, if you add a bunch of success, he said, it's the mental game that breaks down first. And I thought that was really interesting. And he, he further explained you know, I have to know during the season and the off season, okay, on Tuesdays, these are the five drills I do. And on Wednesdays, I always do this ice bath here. And on Thursdays, this is what I eat. And he said, I had to get really disciplined with that. And it really convicted me about other areas of my life where I was kind of learning things for the first time every time. Like I always talk about the first time you do something should be the worst time because you've never done it. Like one thing I I say to podcasters is, you know, I'd love to do your podcast the second year you have a podcast. Because you learn so much. I'm sure you can go back to your first episodes and go, wow, I I learned so much. I do things so differently now. But a lot of times we repeat the first experience over and over and over. And so the packing one for me was I was traveling, you know, a hundred times a year and I didn't have a packing list. So every night before I traveled, I acted like it was the first time I ever traveled. And I was like, oh, what do I need to bring? I've never traveled. And it would take me like an hour to pack. Until finally, after talking to that NFL player and getting really specific, I spent an hour, like I paid an upfront hour to save, you know, hundreds of hours over the next five years. And I opened up an Evernote file and I made a packing list. And so now every time I travel, the first thing I do is I print out that packing list. 
And it feels silly sometimes. Like I'm an adult. Do I really need to check things off a box? I do. Like I have enough evidence in my life that I do. And so I print that out and I start checking it off. It cuts my time in half. And so my challenge for my own life and other people's lives are where are the things that you have to do repeatedly and how do you put them on what I call autopilot? Because there's really two types of things you do. You do fighter pilot stuff and autopilot. Like fighter pilot, they have their processes, but a lot of their stuff is new and different every time they're in a battle. So there's things you do in your life that are fighter pilot, where it's an opportunity you've never had before. It's a legitimate first time, and you've got to have some skills for that. But there's a lot of things that if we were honest and took the upfront time, we could go, wow, these are autopilot. These are things that I have to do more than once, so I should get better at them every time I do them. That was what we did with the book tour. In the spring when I did a book tour, I was kind of lazy about it. And I would just go, oh, wait a second, we're going to be at this city in like nine days. We should do an event bright and like throw together something. And I reinvented it. And a lot less people came because I didn't have my information in order. I didn't do it early enough. And then finally, with this fall tour, I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to get ahead of it. I'm going to create a checklist of things we do. And, and this is what I'm going to do. And so that's how I, I've started to live a large part of my life. Like the background sheet, the bio sheet sets a tone. Like it sets a tone. And it right out of the gate goes, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be an awesome experience. And I, this is the information I need because I'm serious about the quality that this is going to be. I guarantee Jason isn't rewriting that bio sheet or that checklist. Like hopefully no. you guys aren't having a meeting every week where you're like, hey, let's pretend we've never interviewed something, somebody. What should we say? No, you figured out how to put that on autopilot. And it serves the purpose. So that's how I look at a lot of my life. No, it's it's very true. I think what I've seen from a lot of entrepreneurs, just because I work with those types a lot, and coincidentally, people who are not at all entrepreneurs, but just want to know what to do with their life. I see this constant sort of phenomenon. Let's say they're starting a show of their own, or they're writing something, or they're creating video or something like that. The first three videos, they've got them outlined. They know where the shots are going to be. They've got all the equipment, checklist, lineup, they know who's gonna do what, they know how they're gonna promote it and everything. And then they do three, five, 10, I don't know, 50 or even 100 of these. And then that checklist, they don't look at it anymore and they don't need to do it anymore. And they're like, listen, man, I'm a pro now, I got it down. And then what happens is they start to plateau and they don't really know why and they start to stagnate in their work, whatever it is, whether they're an engineer or a videographer. And what it always seems to come back to, or I, I should say, what it often seems to come back to is I say, okay, well, what's your system for doing this? And they go, well, I've been doing this for so long that I don't really write it down. And I go, well, you know, if I'm coaching you, for example, or consulting or whatever, write it down for me. And they write it down. And the first thing they do, they don't just email it and go, here's that list, let me know what you think. They go, oh my God, I haven't written this down for three years. Just writing this down changed the way that I'm gonna do everything moving forward. And it was the same thing for me. You listen to the first few episodes of The Art of Charm, they're terrible. And not because the content's bad, it's just because I didn't know what the hell's going on. And they should be. You hadn't done it long. Yeah, exactly. And, and then when I got to episode 100, I was like, ah, finally, episode 100, I'm a seasoned veteran. I look at those now and I go, ugh. And I remember around episode 250, I interviewed Robert Green. I remember it really clearly. I was sitting in LA in what was my studio then, and I had just upgraded a bunch of equipment, and I, Robert Green was a big deal. He was a friend of mine, so I was really stoked on it, and I outlined the whole thing, and I don't follow outlines for interviews. I, I diagrammed things that I wanted to get in there, things, tracks where I might go down that road. Not scripts, but, you know, plans, and I made sure he had those. And I remember at the end of that interview, it went really well, and I went, 
I'm finally starting to get the hang of this. And it was no coincidence that it was the amount of prep and the amount of outlining and diagramming and making sure I had the salient points together. It was no coincidence that that made that interview that much better. And I, I had this realization where I went, oh my gosh, people who are really good at this stuff, they know that they do need the prep. They went through the first bit where they needed the prep to get by. They went through that second phase where they were cocky enough to think they didn't need it. And they circle on back to doing that prep going through that system, making sure those boxes are checked because that's what professionals do who are really good at what they do and they modify. That's a, it's a living document. Yeah, and I, I absolutely love that. I think you're right. I think it's because you get casual or you get enough success to trick you into plateauing. Mm -hmm. I think another thing is you add too many things to what you're doing. Yeah, there's that. Sometimes I'll see young entrepreneurs that started out working 40 hours a week on these three things and then as they get bigger... They add five other things as if they can create the previous three things with only 10 hours now. To jump on that, my example would be, because I know that a lot of your listeners want to be public speakers, are public speakers, are exploring that. A specific example of where you need a list is you should always ask as many times as you can of as many people as you can when you go to speak in an event, how much time you have on stage. Like that's one of those right before you go up, you need to understand that question. And I saw somebody at an event once and all they did was they asked the sound guy, the guy who was running the, the sound stage, they said, Hey, how much time do I have? And the guy, he didn't know, but he just said, well, you got like 90 minutes. I'll give you 95. And during the guy's speech from the back of the room, the host of the event raised his hand up for five because the guy was going too long. And the guy on stage had to stop his speech and say, hey, how much, you know, I can't see your hand. What does it say? And the guy in the back said, five minutes. The guy on stage said, but, but the clock says I have 27 left. And the guy in the back said, no. And it just wrecked the whole speech for the guy. And it was just a small thing of he asked the wrong person and not enough people, hey, just to double check. I know you told me three weeks ago that I had this amount of time, but a lot happens in three weeks. A lot happens on the day of the event. How much time do I really have? And so that was one that I put on my list of here's the things you do when you show up to do a speech. The prep is the mark of the professional. And it, you might even do the prep document and never even need to look at it. But the fact is it needs to go in there. And I used to think this was just my OCD type kicking in. But the more I talk to really high performing individuals, the more I see that. And some of it gets outsourced, but when you look at people who are true masters of their craft, and whether or not you like them or hate them, look at a guy like Howard Stern. I see these podcasters who don't put in the prep and they don't have this and they don't have that, but then you look at a guy like Howard Stern, and that guy prepares more than anybody. When he gets a guest, he's read the book, and then somebody else has read the other three books, and he knows the latest work. He's not looking at a one sheet when he drives to the studio. He's been preparing for that for a really long time. Yeah, and it comes through. It comes through, yeah. He's one of our generation's best interviewers. You Easily. know, you hear him with Louis C.K., um, his interviews are Seinfeld. You hear there's nuance there, and you hear people talking about things they never get to talk about in ways they never thought they'd talk about them. And the only way that you can do that is by digging deep beforehand. No matter how much talent you have or how much practice you have, winging it is not going to do the trick. It will no, not. No, I, I'm learning, like, I've recently learned the difference between talent and craft. So I was giving a speech. It was a speech I'd done probably 14 times. And during it, I said a joke I'd never said before, and it was the biggest joke of the moment, the entire speech. And so that's talent. Like, in the moment, saying something, thinking on your feet, that's talent craft is remembering that joke and doing it a second time 
and a third time and bringing it forward. A lot of times we live out of talent where we let stuff happen, but we never bring them forward, which to me is what craft is. I think that's brilliant. Nobody ever really goes through that. And I think the problem is you have to have both to be able to recognize it. So it's something we don't think about a lot, especially when we're focused on our own stuff. You've got sort of a five question arsenal that you can use to figure out what skills you really have, and I think that's huge. I know a lot of people, young and old, are, seem to be consistently asking me what they should do when really they should be asking themselves, and the reason they can't get the right answer is because they're not asking the right questions. Yeah, I think it's a popular question, and again, I try to create a simple way that draws you into the exercise and creates more results than you expected. And so similar to the relationship exercise we talked about, I love to use note cards for this. I love for you to put one skill per note card. And the, the five questions I ask, and they start really simply, are number one, what are you good at? Like, forget humility. This is not the time to be humble. We have a culture that kind of shames you when you tweet about something you're excited about and will tell you humble brag. And so this isn't that time. This is for you to sit down and go, okay, I was great at on-time delivery at all my projects, or here's things I've received promotions for. Here's things I'm actually good at. Number two, what comes naturally? What comes naturally to you? Derek Sievers talks about that, about how you know it's ordinary to us and extraordinary to everybody else. We sometimes, we denigrate the things we're naturally good at because we assume other people are good at them too, and we assume they don't have value. We look at everybody else's skills and go, that's a skill that's worth something. The things that come naturally to me, that's just something I do. So that's the second question. The third question is, what do people pay me to do? So you've had a job career at some point where somebody's paid you money to perform some service. So if you are in charge of quality assurance for software launches, write that down, right? Quality assurance. What are the, the skills that somebody pays you to do? Number four is what are you afraid of? Um, what's something you're actually afraid of? And sometimes we go about this the wrong way. I, I, we have this culture right now that tries to tell you you're going to have a perfect job. I saw another author the other day say, if you don't love 90% of what it takes to be in your industry, you're in the wrong industry. And I thought that's just garbage advice. Because what that says in a 40-hour work week is there's only four hours that aren't magical. Like there's only, you know, 36 hours are unicorn moments and four are difficult. That's not true at all. Most people have longer than a four-hour commute every week. You're going to have to do some uncomfortable things that, that aren't easy. So I love to ask the question, what are you afraid of? Because a lot of times we'll run from the things we really care about. You know, we've always wanted to be a writer and we're afraid to do that. Or we've always wanted to have a podcast and share ideas, but we're afraid to do that. Number five, which gets more specific is if you wrote an ebook, what would the topic be? If I said to you, hey, you've got to generate $1,000 in the next month by writing an ebook that teaches somebody else how to do something, what would the topic be? What's something that you have enough expertise to create an ebook on? Or maybe what's three books that you could do after that? And so you end up with all these note cards. And then again, you start to look for patterns. You'll start to be able to see, okay, wow, five of the skills I wrote down are related to people. And I'm really naturally skilled at working with people. And I'm really passionate about that. And my current job doesn't involve people. That might be part of the reason I'm really unhappy at my current job. Everything I'm naturally wired for, I don't get to do during the, the week. So now it's on me to figure that out. Like I always tell people, it's not, your, it's not your company's job for you to have a good job. It's your job. It's not your boss's job for you to have a good job. It's your job. When I felt stuck at a company in Atlanta, 
and I wanted to do more leadership, I applied to every leadership program they had. And I got into some that had nothing to do with my job. I was the only person who wasn't in customer service that was on the customer service experience team. But I learned a ton about relating to people. I got exposed to a whole new department in our company and I formed all these new relationships. So that's where you start to see the patterns and you start to go, like, I don't like the question, what's your calling? Because I think that's a rabbit trail. A lot of people get lost down and they, or what's my perfect purpose? Like there's two things we care about. We get obsessed about purpose and then we get obsessed about legacy. And legacy is a funny one because I always tell people like, what did your great grandfather do for a job? What was his name? Most people can't answer that. So sometimes chasing purpose, chasing legacy are things that you can use to hide from actually doing the work you know you're supposed to do. You know what? I, I found out what my great-grandfather did, and it's not that great. It's actually What did he do? He was, you know what a union breaker is? Yeah, it involves like a club, doesn't it? Yeah. He basically was like, so he couldn't get a job in the auto industry because he was Jewish. Which seems really fair, by the way. I can see how the two are related. I definitely see the link here. Yeah, so what what ended up happening was he got hired by the auto companies to, to beat up the workers that were forming unions so that they wouldn't, you know, organize. So ironically, he did get a job with the auto company, just not on the assembly line, more on the disassembly line. Typically, Jewish men in their 40s aren't exactly like these giant muscle-bound dudes. He was probably like five foot one. I'm sure he figured it out. He probably got those Popeye forearms. Yeah. Like he, I'm sure he made it work. But like he was the guy beating up the newsies. Yeah, I don't think he rolled solo. But I, there's a picture of him in this old newspaper. My mom has it. And there he is with like one of those black fedora-looking hats and a black trench coat like beating someone up in the street. And that's the only picture that, that exists of this man. <laughs> There's his legacy. Yeah, very proud family history there. That's hilarious. With the five questions, we have what are the skills that someone has paid you to do in the past? What are you actually afraid of? What's something you have enough expertise on to write a book about or an ebook about? Yeah, it's what are you good at? What comes naturally? What do people pay me to do? And you could expand that to what would people pay me to do? The answer is almost anything. Um, what are you afraid of? And if you wrote an ebook, what would the topic be? Or even, you know, maybe that sounds so intimidating. If you wrote a three-page you know, document explaining something to somebody that's an expertise you have, what would that expertise be? And a lot of times when I start this exercise with people, they go, nothing, I don't know. You know like, it's like relationships. We don't know the skills we have. And often, we've never sat down and really thought about it. And what happens is you'll start to see gaps, too. You'll start to see areas where you go, wow, I, I really thought I had more in this one area. I'd like to learn more about that. Because what happens is I feel like right now industries are changing so quickly that if you don't continue to grow your skills, you become a dinosaur. You know, we saw that happen to graphic designers who refused to learn how to design for the Internet. Um, we saw that, learn, you know, photographers that, that wouldn't make the, the digital jump. And so that's the goal, that the skill exercise, to show you how many you have and encourage you that way, but to also help you see which ones you want to develop. Because I think a lot of people don't really won't really know what comes naturally. They might just pick something that they're good at, and then we end up in this weird circle chasing our tail. Yeah, so I think what comes naturally is something you don't have to make yourself do. My wife really challenged me on this. I was like, sometimes when I write first drafts of books, I get really serious author. The first thing I sent you was me writing a serious author. I share intuitive ideas and counterintuitive ways to help generate life change. And what comes naturally to me is humor. At dinner parties, when I'm in my most natural environment, I'm not telling people, 
hey, you know what? Here's the seven ways to change your life in some intuitive ways. Like, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying jokes or I'm doing the bin. Like, we wouldn't watch nine videos at Blockbuster. What's happened to us? You know, I'm pulling at threads in a funny way. That's what comes natural to me. What I'm good at, you know, is something that takes work. I have to work hard at something. So you can be good at something you're not natural at. Right, so it's something where you've built the skill over time, right? So I would say what's natural is to you is like, what's the stuff that if you start doing it, you look up and it's an hour later? Um, because you'll never have to force yourself to do stuff you're naturally good at, but you will have to do it for things you don't like. I'll never accidentally find myself in my email just answering emails like, oh my gosh, like look at me scheduling stuff. This is, I just stumbled on here. But I will stumble into other situations, like writing. I'll write stuff and go, wow, time's really passed in a different way. I naturally enjoy this. It, it doesn't mean it's always easy. Of course not. It's A lot of times it's hard. But that's to me, that's the difference. That's good. So yeah, what comes naturally is something you don't have to make yourself do where the time flies. What are you good at? can be something you love or even that you don't necessarily love, but something that you've built the skill, right, over time. 100%. I mean, you could be an amazing account manager, um, and say, you know, I met somebody the other day. I said, why'd you get good at organization? And he said, well, I wanted to play at a level my natural skills wouldn't allow. And that's a great way to understand, okay, like if you're an entrepreneur, there's things you're going to have to get good at that you might not naturally do. I'm not a naturally organized person. This, a lot of the stuff we talked about today was me being deliberate. I can be pretty introverted. Like I'm not good naturally at relationships. So a lot of the stuff I share is me saying, Wow, I recognized this had tremendous value. I recognized I wasn't naturally good at it. What was I going to do about it? Like I recognized I don't get to be an entrepreneur for very long if I'm not good at relationships, if I'm not constantly building my skills, and those things might not be natural to me, how do I actually work at them? Excellent. Well, this has been phenomenal. We'll leave those questions in those exercises in the show notes as well. So people can go to acuff.me slash art of charm. We'll have that linked in the show notes. If you're driving, don't be all like, oh, I got to write this down and then crash and then we lose a fan because we, we need them where we can get them. Is there any concept, principle or anything that I have not explored that you want to make sure you deliver to the AOC audience? Yeah, here's the last thing I'd say. I know two things. I know you're capable of more than you think. And I know it's going to be harder than you think. And my hope is that if I can get you to believe that first one, if I can get you to get the hope and the joy and the belief of that you're capable of more than you think, I can actually talk to you about the hard work that it's going to take. I think a lot of times people like me, motivational guys, talk about the first part, but there's nothing practical on the backside to do anything and you fizzle out. You read a book, you get excited and nothing happens. Or they give you the second part, all the hard work and you don't have that fuel of hope to push through and so you get discouraged. So my 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 goal is to give you both sides of that conversation. And I think that's where you really start to see life change and a lot of fun things happen. Great, John Acuff, Do Over, available now. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Jordan, this was fun. All right, good stuff from John. He's a fun guy. I knew right when we did the pre-interview that this is going to be a good show, and he delivered a lot here. Jason, I don't know. You were pretty quiet on this one. Were you just tired? No, I wasn't. Well, I was tired because we did it at 630 in the morning, but I was also engaged. I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I, I think he's a great speaker, and I think his, uh, his putting handles on ideas theory and using the humor is obviously not only what he's naturally good at, but is really really a gift that that he brings to everyone else so i think he's really found it only took him 17 years in the workforce and however many years before that so 
I think it's great to see some of the, how the sausage is made on the inside of some of the journey and to debunk some of the traditional self-help garbage that we like to debunk here on the show. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank John on Twitter. We'll have his Twitter linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show. Obviously, his book will be there in the free stuff that he mentioned. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I also post a lot on Twitter, stuff that never makes it to the show, articles, insights, and uh, I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details for our live programs, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're a little interested, you can get in touch now and plan ahead. Subscribe in iTunes, write a nice review. We've got our iPhone apps, we've got our Android apps, and special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of The Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 